Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 13, A Restless Peace. In 1803, just 20 years after the American Revolution, the United States completed the Louisiana Purchase, acquiring from the Kingdom of France nearly 1 million square miles of land beyond the Mississippi and doubling the size of the nation in an instant. Most of this land remained entirely uncharted, and the young nation knew not what it had gained. But three years later, the intrepid explorers Lewis and Clark returned from their epic expedition and confirmed that indeed a beautiful country lay before the people, pristine and fertile, and populated by no one but the countless native tribes. Thus began the period of American expansion and the inexorable outward push of the dominion of the states. The acquisition of Oregon country from the British was inked in 1818, and then of Florida from the Spanish in the following year. The annexation of the Republic of Texas in 1845 ignited the Mexican-American War, a bloody conflict which culminated in 1848 with the capitulation of the entire territory of Alta California and completed the assembly of the vast coast-to-coast domain which we know today as the Lower 48. As the U.S. built up its strength over the first decades of the 19th century, winning conquest after conquest, it seemed that this society had been blessed from above. These were the earliest days of the first Industrial Revolution, when remarkable contraptions like the railroad and the steamship were connecting the ports and cities of the states and driving trade and economic growth at an unprecedented pace. The invention of the cotton gin had transformed the plantations of the southern states into a colossally profitable enterprise, powered by vast armies of enslaved people. And wherever the white man went, Native American populations seemed to melt in the face of superior technology and systems of law and governance. It seemed indisputable to Americans that the American civilization was the greatest in all the land. Compelled by a belief in the natural superiority of this society and the tantalizing vision of an entire continent remade in its image, these successes were seen as the nation's manifest destiny. The United States of America was God's gift to earth. And the earth was God's gift to America. And so, by the thousands upon thousands, the people headed west. By 1840, their calloused hands had arduously carved out the Oregon Trail to the Pacific Northwest. By 1846, the Mormon Trail had reached the Great Salt Lake. And by 1847, the California Trail was carrying families by the wagon load to Northern California, where they bestowed their benevolent enlightenment upon all they met, from the Chinook to the Chumash. In the Oklahoma reservations, the Native American tribes who had only just been resettled there 
suddenly found themselves once again overtaken, surrounded by farmers, ranchers, and prospectors. When gold was struck in California in 1848, triggering the California gold rush, the stream of migrants turned into a torrent. And by 1860, the fantastic tales of the Wild West were everywhere. As the distant drumbeat of progress and expansion grew steadily more strident, its reverberations echoed down into the deep recess of the Florida Peninsula with rising intensity. Though it sat at the crossroads of the Americas, surrounded by diverse forces, South Florida was United States territory, and its destiny was being pulled along with the rest of the nation. Indeed, it was the philosophy of manifest destiny that had fueled the Seminole Wars, as the government, so successful in settling and cultivating the new valleys and plains beyond the Appalachians, remained determined to bring order to the confounding Florida landscape. The Second Seminole War had ended with the Seminoles in Florida a mere shadow of their former selves. After hostilities came to an end, the few who remained in the territory stayed mostly to themselves in their reservation, in the Everglades and the southwestern swamps of Big Cypress, where they sought to minimize their contact with white settlers as much as possible. For the U.S.'s part, enthusiasm for further military action was thoroughly exhausted, and troops were withdrawn from the territory, save for a couple of small garrisons in the north. On the Miami River, Fort Dallas was once again abandoned, and an anxious calm settled over the land. While elsewhere, the nation strove resolutely towards the future, the Seminole conflict had left Florida lagging far behind, both in terms of population and economic development. To move things along, the U.S. adopted a new tactic. The idea was to hand out hundreds of square miles of free land to settlers, attracting a steady stream of pioneers who would quickly outnumber the remaining Seminoles. Once settled, they would defend their lands against any further incursion, without the need for military involvement. At least, that was the theory. The plan was enshrined in the Armed Occupation Act, passed by Congress in 1842, which provided for any adult male or head of household to be granted up to 160 acres of Florida land free of charge. In lieu of payment, settlers needed only to demonstrate their commitment to the land by building a home and occupying it for at least five years. But if the Armed Occupation Act sounded good in theory, it suffered from a conspicuous problem. For most of the peninsula, the government had yet to carry out any public land surveys. Without these surveys, it was impossible to say where one homesteader's property ended and their neighbors began. As a result, the draw of free land failed to live up to expectations, and the growth in population continued to flounder, especially on the distant, hard-to-reach shores of Biscayne Bay. For his part, Richard Fitzpatrick, who had poured so much energy into making Dade County respectable, had finally had enough of South Florida. The military occupation of his land 
at the mouth of the Miami River had ruined his dignified southern plantation, a loss for which he did not neglect to sue the government. He turned his sights elsewhere, moving first to Texas and eventually to California in pursuit of gold, and sold his Biscayne Bay land holdings to his nephew, William English. English took very much after his uncle. He was also a slave owner from the Plantation Society of Charleston and had also spent many years in Key West and Indian Key prior to the war. Also like Fitzpatrick, he saw great potential in the picturesque landscape of Biscayne country. Upon coming into possession of his uncle's rundown plantation, English immediately set about renovating it and planting new crops of sugar, coffee, and tropical fruits. Conspicuously, he also began construction on two large stone buildings, a two-story house to serve as his manor home, and a 17-foot by 95-foot long building, which was to house the roughly 100 slaves who lived and worked on his property. Besides the Cape Florida Lighthouse, these two stone buildings were by far the most ambitious construction projects yet undertaken in the area. English also made an effort to develop an actual town. On the south bank of the river, he had a few streets platted and parceled off and began advertising lots for sale in what he called the Village of Miami. A handful of surviving deeds have been uncovered, indicating he sold at least a couple parcels on so-called Porpoise Street, on the condition that the buyer construct a sturdy wooden house. In the surrounding area, the population had dropped dramatically during the war. But now, pioneers slowly trickled back in. A few even managed to prove up their claims under the Armed Occupation Act, but most did not make the effort instead choosing to settle as squatters until a survey could be completed. Throughout the 1840s, there were perhaps one or two hundred people living in the entire area that now encompasses Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties. And in a region that today is home to millions, these pioneers had nothing if not space. They lived scattered along the shoreline, on the banks of the creeks and rivers, and occasionally deep in the backwoods, where they may not have encountered another living soul except for panthers or rattlesnakes for days or weeks at a time. The stories of many of these hardy men and women are lost forever, but others, particularly those active in local governance and business, have left a trail from which we can learn a great deal. These include names like Temple Pent, perhaps the oldest resident in the area, who had come to Biscayne Bay back when it was still Spanish territory. He had stuck it out through the Seminole Wars, and his two sons, Ned and John Pent, would become prominent members of the frontier towns that came later. Descendants of the Pent family still live in the Miami area today, likely making them the area's oldest family. Another prominent resident was Dr. Robert R. Fletcher, who moved to the area from Indian Key after the war. He established a homestead on the south side of the river, next to English's village of Miami, where he set up a trading post and coontie mill. Nearby, 
a man named Reason Duke had a home at today's Brickell Point. And further south, Ned Beasley and his wife Anne built a home in present-day Coconut Grove. Our old friend John DeBose, keeper of the first lighthouse, also returned to the bay and settled down with his family near today's Gables Estates in the vast swath of South Dade that was known back then as the Hunting Grounds. Several of these men represented Dade County in Tallahassee during the 1840s. William English, Temple Pent, and Dr. Fletcher were all territorial legislators. In that capacity, they achieved some significant milestones. The first came in 1844, when the seat of Dade County was moved to the, quote, Miami River, where it empties into Biscayno Bay. Until that time, the county seat was still down at Indian Key, even though that island had lain abandoned since being sacked by the Seminoles four years earlier. In the interim, Dade County had been completely ungoverned, but now Dr. Fletcher took up the role of clerk of the county court, keeping the county's records of legal proceedings, and his home on the Miami River became the county courthouse. The next big step came the following year, when Florida was admitted into the Union, becoming the 27th state. Dr. Fletcher had helped draft the state's first constitution. When it was ratified in 1845, Florida took its seat in the halls of Washington, gaining representation in Congress and full sovereignty over its own affairs to establish laws, taxation, elections, and so forth as it saw fit. Even more signs of life returned to Biscayne Bay in 1846, when the burnt-out husk of the Cape Florida Lighthouse, which had been left in ruins since its dramatic and fiery destruction by Seminoles ten years prior, was rebuilt and relit. The new tower was constructed largely out of the bricks of the old, though some new ones had to be shipped in from Massachusetts. With the tower once again ready to shine, the role of lighthouse keeper was taken up by Reason Duke. In the coming years, the responsibility passed to Temple Pent, then to Dr. Fletcher, and finally, longtime resident Simeon Frau took over in 1859. He and his family lived beneath the beacon at Cape Florida for many decades, and after the Pents, the descendants of the Fraus are possibly the next oldest family in the city today. Many other names are recorded in the Miami area during this time, too many for us to mention, but there are two more that bear highlighting, those of the brothers George and Thomas Ferguson, the first Kunti tycoons of Miami. The Kunti plant had always been a fixture of life on Biscayne Bay. The tough little cycad, which looks like a bunch of palm fronds sticking out of the ground, grew everywhere and the method of its preparation had been passed down from the Tequesta themselves. It's one of those things that makes you go, hmm, how in the world did they figure that one out? See, the plant is deadly poisonous when eaten raw, but after a process of soaking, peeling, grinding, and sifting, the starch-filled roots yield a fine, bright white powder, which, by all accounts, was excellent for baking or use as a thickening agent. Being Biscayne Bay's first commercial export, 
every resident knew how to prepare kunti flour whenever cash became tight. By the 1840s, it was being sold in America under the name Florida Arrowroot and fetched a fine price on the markets at Key West. But until the end of the Second Seminole War, kunti preparation was done mostly on a subsistence basis. It was George and Thomas Ferguson who took things to the next level. Arriving from Key West after the war, they hiked up to the head of the Miami River, and there they built a huge kunti mill on the rapids, powered by the falling waters cascading out of the Everglades. The Ferguson's Kunti Mill, located roughly at the present-day intersection of Northwest 20th Street and 27th Avenue, was Miami's first industrial building. Employing as many as 25 workers, it was a highly successful operation. But when news of gold in California reached Biscayne Bay, Thomas Ferguson jumped at the opportunity. Leaving his brother George to take over the Kunti operation, he joined the mad stampede of 49ers to the opposite end of America, elbowing his way onto a packed steamer from Havana to Panama, and from there to the fledgling, chaotic frontier town of San Francisco, where the harbor was filled with the abandoned ships of countless impatient prospectors. In California, Thomas struck gold, and also operated a successful business supplying other miners. All this is recorded firsthand in his correspondence with his wife, Rosalind, whom he had left with their children in Key West. These harrowing letters tell of the extreme poverty, sickness, and loneliness of Rosalind and the children, while Thomas worked tirelessly to secure their riches. But in them, we also find this golden nugget, penned by Thomas from Sacramento in 1850. I received a letter from George by the last mail. He seems to be in high hopes of his success in the Kunti business. I hope he may realize all his anticipations, but give me the digging of the root of all evil, not Kunti roots. As it happens, both brothers would do quite well for themselves. That year, George Ferguson sold 300,000 pounds of Kunti starch, and sales of Ferguson's Florida Arrowroot netted him a profit of $24,000, equivalent, by some measures, to more than a million dollars today. Thomas would soon return from California a very rich man, and the Fergusons lived out the rest of their days as prominent members of Key West's upper class. And in case you're wondering, yes, Miami has been exporting fine white powder for hundreds of years. But what has happened to this industry today? The answer lies in the economics of Kunti cultivation. The plant grows extremely slowly, taking many years to mature, only to be destroyed during harvesting. It is thus extremely costly to cultivate. The cost was not a factor when Dade County was covered with an abundant natural supply, but in the early 1900s, industrial-scale kunti production nearly wiped the plant out, and with it, we might add, the beautiful Atala butterfly to which it plays host. After that, the kunti business collapsed. Although kunti plants are now popular as landscaping features, and the butterfly has made a comeback, 
the cooking industry has long since turned to more economical sources, such as wheat flour, for its mass-produced baking needs. As time went on, the signs of order and civilized society slowly mounted, and the restless settlers of Biscayne Bay began to dream that perhaps, finally, real prosperity was just around the corner. For many years, they had lived peacefully alongside the Seminoles, who only emerged from their watery sanctuary to trade at the many Indian trading posts set up by whites. The looming fear of Seminole tax had little by little begun to subside, but a nervous distrust and skepticism still percolated in the minds of many, who subscribed wholeheartedly to the narrow-minded theory that the Indians were a savage and inferior race. Thus, in 1849, when a rogue band of young Seminoles far off the reservation carried out a pair of brazen attacks in central Florida, killing three settlers and injuring several more, the news spread like wildfire. And once again, Florida was gripped by panic. In no time, exaggerations and false rumors ran rampant, with claims of additional attacks and the start of a new offensive. The fear unleashed by these rumors brought an immediate halt to developments up and down the peninsula. The Seminoles may be lurking in the brush this very moment, the people thought, watching us with covetous eyes. The terror of natives pouring out of the Everglades to scalp their families overcame the settlers, and in droves they fled, abandoning their homesteads. Taken by surprise by the sudden crisis in Florida, the army scrambled to send 1,400 troops into the state to quell the situation. Abandoned forts from the Second Seminole War were reoccupied, including Fort Myers and Fort Pierce. A small detachment was even sent to Fort Dallas, where William English, like his uncle, suddenly found his plantation occupied. But as better intelligence came in, it became clear that there had only been two attacks, carried out by no more than five Seminole delinquents. Seminole leaders were taking great pains to disavow the attacks. Holata Miko, known to the whites as Billy Bowlegs, and Abiaka, known as Sam Jones, bent over backwards to preserve the peace, capturing four of the five perpetrators themselves and delivering them directly to the hands of U.S. authorities for justice. The scare it was apparent, was a false alarm. There was no war. The troops were removed from English's plantation after a year of boredom and drunkenness. But the damage had been done. The attention of the United States had been snapped back to Florida and the reality of the ongoing seminal problem. The Armed Occupation Act was not working the settlers were too few and far between to be able to coordinate their own defense. Many were not, in fact, armed with even a rifle. Of those who had abandoned their homesteads, many never returned. And of those who did, many found their land claims under the act stymied by their period of absence. Residents began to petition vehemently for the project of forceful seminal removal to be completed. An article published in St. Augustine in August 1850 read, We can expect nothing from a federal government committed to peaceful removal and only to our state legislature. 
Florida Indians should be outlawed and reward of $1,000, an enormous sum at the time, for man dead or alive and $500 for live woman and child. Thus, people could still hunt them. George Ferguson also petitioned the government to remove the Seminoles, which he called a standing evil and obstacle to all settlement and improvement. If it wasn't for them, he wrote, South Florida would soon become what nature has so evidently designed upon other genial climates, fresh pure streams, rich hammocks, and numerous spontaneous products. Others saw things differently, fearing the price all would pay for yet another war. A letter published in the Florida News attributed to an old settler read, Why don't we let Indians stay? They have not hurt growth of state. A few stock minders along the frontier are the only ones who would benefit. Sam Jones is 90 years old and too old to travel. Let's settle rich sugar, cotton, and tobacco lands. War would lead us into great debt. War, indeed, was something the United States hoped desperately to avoid in Florida. But it was clear that doing nothing was not an option. The government began a campaign to turn up the pressure on the Seminoles once more, starting with a gradual military buildup as a show of force. With the clouds of conflict returning to South Florida, William English, like his uncle, turned his attentions elsewhere. Likely inspired by the enormous success of Thomas Ferguson, who had just returned, he took off to California in search of gold. English wrote that after he had made his riches, and the Seminole menace had been dealt with, he intended to return and really get the village of Miami going. But unfortunately, he died in California, leaving his estate, including the land on both banks of the Miami River, to his mother Harriet English in South Carolina. No map of the planned village of Miami is known to exist, and the exact location of Porpoise Street is a mystery but it is safe to assume it lies somewhere beneath the towering condominiums of Brickell on the banks of the river. Despite the Seminoles' best efforts, the Indian scare of 1849 had lit a fuse. The U.S. was compelled to press the issue, calling on the Florida Seminoles to emigrate to Oklahoma, but they continued to resist, and the pressure placed on them mounted. Trade embargoes were put in place to squeeze them economically, and a system of bribes and harassment was instituted. Army patrols were established to round up and deport any Seminoles found outside of the reservation, and soon, the Army began dispatching teams directly into the reservation itself, ostensibly to survey for roadways and to, you know, check in on things. In 1855, Fort Dallas was reoccupied once again, and the most substantial buildup of the Miami River to date began in earnest. For reasons we have not quite been able to deduce, the two stone buildings begun by William English were found unfinished. The larger building had two stories of stone walls built, but no roof. This building was floored and roofed and turned into officers' quarters. A wooden second story was added to the one-story slave quarters, and it was put in service as troop barracks. Funds for several other wood frame buildings and other improvements were requested and granted, 
and for the first time, Fort Dallas began to transform into a proper military complex. On December 20, 1855, with the Seminoles backed into a corner, the fuse ran out. Lieutenant George Hartsuff and his company out of Fort Myers on a surveying patrol into the Seminole Reservation in Big Cypress Swamp were attacked by a raiding party led by Billy Bowlegs, who killed four and wounded several more. On word of the attack, Fort Dallas geared up for wartime operations. At Fort Myers, local militias were raised and more army troops were mustered. The Third Seminole War, also known as Billy Bowlegs' War, was a much smaller affair than the Second Seminole War had been, involving far fewer numbers on either side and contained mostly to the more accessible Big Cypress Swamp to the west of the Everglades. Familiar with the conditions this time around, the U.S. did not attempt large-scale raids into the swamps, but rather relied on smaller incursions to destroy seminal crops and make their lives as difficult as possible. Although not every seminal band chose to fight, several, particularly those led by Billy Bowlegs, carried out small raids on patrolling troops, as well as a handful of attacks on settlers. At Biscayne Bay, the only bloodshed that occurred was near today's Coconut Grove, when two men gathering Kunti were ambushed and killed. But this one attack drove virtually all remaining homesteaders out of Biscayne country. William Harney, veteran of the Second Seminole War and by now a brigadier general, was brought in to take command of the effort in 1856. He repeated the previous war's tactic of barricading the Seminoles into the swamps with a string of fortresses across the peninsula. He was called away a short time later and replaced by Colonel Gustavus Loomis, who, by 1858, had advanced deep into Big Cypress and destroyed many of the villages and farms of Billy Bowleg's band as well as others. Throughout the campaign, Seminoles who were captured, including women and children, were deported to the Oklahoma reservations. Finally, a delegation of Seminoles from Oklahoma was brought to South Florida, and U.S. troops stood down while an attempt was made to contact Bowlegs and the other chiefs. They brought word that the Seminoles had finally been given their own reservation separate from that of the Creeks, a major point of contention in the previous conflicts, and that $500 would be paid to every warrior and $100 to every woman who agreed to go west. The chiefs themselves would receive more. In 1858, Billy Bowlegs and Chief Asinwar, worn out by the fighting, agreed to the offer, and by May, Colonel Loomis declared the war at an end. Nevertheless, it had failed once again to completely remove the Seminoles. Deep in the sawgrass-filled waters of the Everglades, the bands of Chipko and Sam Jones still lived on, numbering perhaps a few hundred in the scattered, fertile inland islands. Though small in scale and contained mostly to the west, the Third Seminole War had an outsized impact on the landscape of Miami. The improvements to Fort Dallas that had been completed were spectacular, a demonstration of the ever-increasing economic fortitude of the nation. Besides the completion of English's two stone buildings, 
numerous sturdy wood frame buildings had been constructed, including several large officers' quarters, a hospital, several kitchens, a carpenter's shop, and a blacksmith's shop. These buildings were lathed and plastered, and many had been topped with shingle roofs, making for very fine quarters that, but for want of air conditioning, even modern Miamians would have likely found quite comfortable. After the army withdrew, the Fort Dallas property, with its many stately buildings and well-manicured parade of Bermuda grass, became the most valuable piece of real estate in Dade County. In North Carolina, Harriet English had a groundskeeper sent down to maintain the property. Several years later, a visiting journalist writing for Harper's new monthly magazine described it thusly as he arrived in Biscayne Bay. The old garrison of Fort Dallas is in full view as we approach. The neat cottage barracks with broad verandas arranged pleasingly around a fine sloping parade, tall cocos, lime trees, and rich groupings of poinciannas and elders loaded with their brilliant blossoms all together form a cheerful scene of much beauty. Accompanying this narrative, an illustration depicted the peaceful setting, with clusters of dignified palms, a solitary rower paddling his way across the placid water, and, in the center of the tidy lawn, a lofty flagpole flying the stars and stripes. The two decades from 1840 to 1860 were a complicated time of conflicting forces, as the momentum of American progress competed with the ongoing theme of conflict and isolation that continued to stymie Biscayne Bay. Nevertheless, it is this period when our history starts to really come alive, leaving not just words and books and correspondences, but a physical trace we can touch and feel. Though the wooden buildings of Fort Dallas are unfortunately no longer with us, the stone longhouse, begun by William English, still stands and can be visited at Loomis Park on the Miami River. Under threat from developers, it was moved here from its original site in 1925. It is the oldest building in Miami-Dade County. And in coming episodes, we will see this venerated edifice become a fixture of the community, a constant presence, and a centerpiece of much of the activity that is to come. The oldest building still in its original location followed only a few years later, the rebuilt Cape Florida Lighthouse. The last modification to this structure took place in 1855, when it was raised to its present height of 95 feet. A living piece of history, you can visit and tour this building today at Bill Baggs State Park. Finally, it is during these years that we find the very earliest photographs beginning to appear. The oldest photo we've come across with ties to South Florida depicts the bearded face of an elderly George Ferguson. In the years that followed, the photographic record of South Florida rapidly went on to bring the people and landscape into sharp relief, revealing to our urban eyes a natural wonderland covered in hammocks and pine and the tranquil waters of Biscayne Bay, at once foreign and yet familiar.